0: Hello, I'm David Kern.
1: And I'm Heidi White.
0: And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. Heidi, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you, David. It's good to be here. It's a rare occurrence, so it's good to... <sighs> it's a friend. rare occur-
0: occurrence that it's good to be here?
1: No. It's... Oh, man, <laughs> my joke is ruined. Now I'm going to feel like glory.
0: <laughs> well, next...
1: Flummoxed. I'm so flummoxed.
0: Flummoxed like glory. You
1: can't recover. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's the name. That should be the name of the uh, the sequel to this book. Should have been flummoxed. Flummoxed
1: like glory. So
0: we are here to discuss Marilyn Robinson's home. We're going to discuss pages one hundred through one hundred and fifty, and we are right in the the thick of things as far as this book goes. Next week, when we discuss the next section, roughly pages one hundred fifty through two hundred. Uh, Sarah Jane Bentley will be joining us. You've listened to her a time or two on the show, and she's going to be filling in for Tim. Who, if you've been listening, you know that he just moved and he's helping take care of his dad, who has been having some health problems. So keep Tim uh, continue to keep Tim in your in your prayers, if you would. He also just had a birthday, so I think I mentioned that last week. But shout out to Tim for uh, taking care of his family and all the things that he has going home. We're thinking about you, man. Um, before we get into 50 pages or so, I want to remind you about Scholé Academy. If you would like to discover classical restful tutoring online, then Scholé Academy's personalized tutoring services might be the perfect fit for you. Their team of master teachers and classical tutors is available year-round to help your students find confidence and delight in their studies. You can choose from supplemental tutoring or private full-course instruction in subjects such as Latin, writing, grammar, mathematics, logic, history, and more. Pricing and scheduling are flexible. If you head over to Schole Academy, that's S-C-H-O-L-E-Academy.com, you can learn more and you can also submit a tutoring request. So once again, that is Schole Academy.com and that's spelled S-C-H-O-L-E-Academy.com. Thanks so much to, to them and our friends over there for sponsoring Close Reads this month and helping make it possible. Also, before we dive in, I want to remind you that we have begun our conversation of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, by the time this goes up, well, there'll still only be one episode, but then early next week, the next one will go up on that. And we've discussed the first chapter so far, so we'll dive into the next couple of chapters. And if you would like to get access to that, you can head over to patreon.com slash close reads to, uh, to join the, the Patreon page. You can also, of course, follow along with all of our Close Reads conversations over on Facebook and on Instagram. Over on Facebook, we've got our Close Reads podcast discussion group, and on Instagram, we are at Close Reads Pods, Podcasts. And then uh, uh, we have our newsletter. That's closereads.substack.com. So we've got that stuff out of the way. We've got the the admin out of the way, the business out of the way. So we can, we can dive into pages 100 through 150. Heidi, last week, we talked a lot about... Um, the sadness of this book,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you texted me with thoughts on the sadness of this book. And you can bring those up later if you want. But do you feel like it's more sad now that we're 150 pages in? Less sad, the same question. sad. Where's uh, where your <laughs> so, Where's it on your sadness sad quotient? meter? Yes, <laughs> your sad meter. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um. So i I spend my kids go to school full time now. I used to homeschool them and. Now they're at school. And so I'm at home working all the time. And I'm alone most of the time. So I was just like thinking about how sad it is to be like home alone for hours at a time me <laughs> reading, reading Marilyn Robinson. Um, um, there's so
0: many, there's so many people listening to this right now that are like just like hating you right now that you I get to be well, home alone because reading I'm a book alone,
1: and i actually i do realize how blessed i am to be at home reading a book i'm just saying <laughs> sitting at home in a big empty house reading Marilyn robinson it's an it's an existential experience um it's i mean your question about is it more sad less sad s- same sad um is hashtag same it, sad same sad is it's good question i feel like the book's taking a turn right it it was all these we talked a lot last week about how quiet they are how they're not talking and now they are talking but they keep missing each other so like saying the wrong thing i mean at, how many but they're making, attempts. It. At they're really making attempts at least they're making good counting stuff you're like 17 times someone said this or <laughs> his face or whatever that's like <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> i have nothing but, like that this time
1: oh god uh, me neither uh but it does seem like they're trying to connect, and sometimes are. But there's a lot more talking and more misunderstanding, and then some actual, real, I think, meaningful connections. Uh, mm. But it's taken a turn, and I think it's tur- maybe same sad. I think to answer the question, I think it's maybe same sad. Uh, hashtag. Um, actually, the hashtag comes first. I do know that it does. Hashtag it does. Same yes. sad. Um, yeah. Good job. <laughs> I'm just
0: you really are flummoxed.
1: Putting like hashtags after phrases on social media, like some kind of baby boomer. <laughs> like.
0: When it's after, I think they call it a pound sign.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> if you'd like to leave anyway. a message,
0: press the pound sign. Press that hashtag button.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> I think it's same sad because, G- yeah, because they keep missing each other
0: so I meant to get a clarification on this last week. And then after the episode, I realized, well, shoot, I forgot to get a clarification on this. Do you find that sadness to be, I don't want to call it a negative because I don't want to say that you're like criticizing her approach. Right. You can if you want, but do you find that difficult? I guess is what I would say. Like, do you find that to be, I don't I'm not even talking about flaws, I guess. I'm just talking about- right.
1: Does yes, like it it's hard to read. It, Yes.
0: Yeah, diminish the experience for you. Yeah. Okay. But then let's 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 go back to the question that yeah. you brought up one of the previous episodes, in which you can you said you'd like to discuss it in comparison to Wendell Berry, for example. Mm-hmm. Wendell Berry's books are very sad. So do you find that same sadness to be difficult or do you find the Wendell Berry sadness to be difficult in his books in the way that you find it to be difficult in Marilyn Robinson's books?
1: That's a good question, and I want to hear your answer to it too. But no, I, it's different because, and I did say this last week that uh, not not in reference to Wendell Berry, but just the heaviness of of Marilyn Robinson is unmitigated in the books. I think, right? And yeah, you did say that. In right? Wendell Berry, there's this, uh, you know, these threads of gold, right? These this is weaving through of a transforming love and an ability to connect as a community and a restoration and forgiveness that happens continually again and again so that the sadness is harmonized with the joy and I, th- I i i mean i feel like that's more indicative of a fully human life than just this unrelenting weight of grief and sadness that you find in marilyn robinson i'm not saying that that doesn't happen but i would love to see some threads of gold i feel like that would make The book's more realistic. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I mean, I honestly don't know what I think about the question. Um,
1: What about the Wendell Berry part? Do you find the sadness the same kind of weight in Wendell Berry? Because you're right. His books are sad.
0: I don't. It's tough for me. I don't. It's like, I've never really thought about books this way before. Mm. Um, Like, I don't read a book and go, well, this is really sad. I don't want to. Like, I I haven't. I don't. have like a sort of visceral response to it that makes it challenging mm. for me, and I I I don't know why that is. I think that I'm just not in tune with my feelings. No, I don't. I don't know what exactly why exactly that's not something that I notice. Um, so it's it's like a difficult. It's I don't feel it in the same way. Do you don't
1: feel sad, like if you're reading Marilyn Robinson this is an interesting conversation to me because it's different kinds of reading, right? Like, do you feel sad when you read a sad book or do you kind of have more of like a, you, you, you are paying a lot of attention to the craft.
0: What do you mean by sad?
1: <laughs> um, what do I mean by sad? Like, you know, the feeling you have when you're sad about something in your life? Do you have that when you read a sad book? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, um, no. Okay. No. But I, like
1: you can objectively know this is sad, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like haunting to you or disturbing to you.
0: Is it different to feel sad about something than it is to um, be caught up in the pathos of a story?
1: I don't know. How would you, what do you mean by pathos? Well, I, I, I mean like- is,
0: yeah, yeah. Do you mind like the Aristotelian definition? Because I might need to Wikipedia no. that for the exact language right. real quick here. Um, no, I mean like the idea that there is an emotional, like I, I think I, I um, accept the terms of the emotional weight of a story,
1: right?
0: And I'm willing and like can, in a way that allows me to feel for the characters that allows me to root for or against characters that 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 makes me feel hopeful that a character can change or um frustrated that they're not changing um i think that maybe when i read a book like this frustration actually might be the better word than sadness because i think what (laughs) i know what i recognize is like for example when they can't say something when they when they try to connect and miss each other to use the phrasing that we've talked about the last couple weeks i think for me i would say that that is like drum i i like kind of feel the dramatic tension that happens there and the frustration as a reader that comes out of that, because like just say what you need to say so you can connect, you know, like it's almost like yelling at the TV screen or something. Uh, or like when you're watching a horror movie, like don't, don't go down. That's this is, this is dumb. Don't go down there. That's just, an, there's obviously going to be a guy down there with an ax, right? Um, now this is different than that, but it's the same sort of experience. It's like a similar experience. Mm. I don't, Know that when I read Marilyn Robinson in any rant, that I feel sadness the way that you're describing, and mm-hmm. maybe it really is that I'm not in tune with my fe- <laughs> my <feelings. laughs>
1: or maybe you're just a little bit more objective when you read books. I get really emotionally involved in books, so um, I think that yeah, it's just a different it's like a different way of reading. There's nothing. Right or wrong about either way, but I do. I get like entangled up in the emotions of a book, and I allow that. I like that about reading. So, I'm not making any uh, kind of
0: assertion when I ask this question. Do you? Do you think that that women and men read those sort of things like on average differently? Like, there's obviously outliers in both groups. There are plenty of cold-hearted women. No, I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so true <laughs> um but you i mean i don't i don't know yeah
1: i don't know i i think that's a fair question and it's probably true it's probably i mean I'm doesn't, i don't mean very, to
0: diminish either either side no, when i say that i don't any, any I,
1: I don't feel like you are i think that that's true because i i really welcome that i know how to you know, have appropriate emotional responses to things. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, um, I, when I read, I, I like the feeling of getting lost in a story mm-hmm. and kind of feeling the weight of what the characters are feeling. And do you dislike
0: some- the weight of the the feeling of being sad, though? I, I know I interrupted you, but I.
1: Yeah, I do. I think that this book feels a little, um, and Marilyn Robinson in general. And this, I, I really do. I'm about to make a statement that's going to sound like a judgment an unkind judgment. I don't mean it that way. It's a little bit much for me. And it, it isn't just because it's the, this weight of sadness. It's because it's the only emotion explored in these books. Mm. Like Wait. I I f- I feel like there's no other in Marilyn Robinson's body of work She's a brilliant writer and an incredible novelist, like craft but I think grief and sadness is the only like emotion explored in any depth in her books hmm. and I don't think that's can i don't think that's indicative of most people's human existence hmm.
0: Th- that I mean that that last part is probably true. I'm trying to decide if I agree with the first part that mm-hmm, she doesn't fair. explore other emotions, and then I'm also trying to figure out if I think that that is say that's true. Then is that a problem? Because right. in a that's way, a like question. a story can only tell a snapshot of a life. Like you're only like I mean, even a book that's like <laughs> about you know covers the gamut of like from birth to death, you know, even if it can still only capture so much. Um, And this is about, you know, a very limited amount of time when very fraught things are happening. And so I'm wondering, I mean, in a sense, isn't the point of the book that people are, maybe your comments about how it's just too much for you is just the fair response to it or a bit much or whatever you said. Um, Mm -hmm. But because, because isn't this book about people who are trying to, Work out the grief that they have and then find the glimmers of. I mean, isn't that like the central problem of the book?
1: Yes. Yeah. It is, I think, the central problem of the book. And I think that they have a real, all of them, and not just in this book, but um in Gilead and Housekeeping, which are the only one I haven't read, Lila. Mm. Um, I, and I obviously haven't read Jack either. <laughs> right, um, right. I I do think they have meaningful connections, and I don't think this is the modern novel in the sense that, you know, a lot of modern novels kind of explore the modern problem of people being lonely and disconnected and kind of drifting through life in this interstitial space of loneliness. I it, these are family books about connections, and. Um, they're pretty unique, I think, in the American canon, especially by a writer of such a faith, uh, who's willing to kind of engage with the depth of this side of human existence. Um, and so I think they're brilliant novels and it's not that it's, I want to be clear. It's not that it like feels too sad for me. They, mm-hmm. they are sad and I mm-hmm. engage with that. It's more like, well, what else do they feel? What else? Like what what kind of meaningful happiness do these people have? Like they they kind of mention it in passing, like the house is busy and happy and there's people over and well
0: let's let's talk about that then. Can we can we make let's let's talk about that this week? Like where do we find um you know, you mentioned that in this section it seems like they're starting to connect in some ways. They're Mm -hmm. not just like shooting past each other. So where do we find some examples? of them finding happiness or whatever. I mean, is it truly absent? Because in many ways, you, you right. continually see them reaching for it. So for example,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, I think we see this in very small things. Like when, um, Boughton asks Jack to play the piano, when they read, when, um, when he, um, is working on the car, when She, when they're sitting and talking, and she's making coffee for him. um, When they, you know, like there's these constant little attempts to reach for pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're fulfilling, and sometimes they're not. And when they don't live up to the expectation, that's when they're least likely to be true. You know, something that makes them actually happy. Like it seems like. Boughton says he wants him to jack to read to him or play the piano to him, and he has this expectation that it's going to lead to some sort of peace, and when it doesn't, it sort of frustrates him mm-hmm. and so there's all these moments where that's happening. would you say then that there are any moments where they do actually reach it, or is that kind of what the sadness is that that when they reach it's just not possible?
1: I think that in this section that we read this week that the that Little vignette about them reading the book about Africa that has this like really horrifying ending by the way. oh, never heard of that book before won't be reading it um, <laughs> they, but that that one forty six to one
0: forty seven if anybody wants to go back and read the thing that Heidi says she's not going to read
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, that they have. They have an actual connection when they're enjoying each other's company. When Bouton seems to forget for a moment that he's trying to convert Jack and save Jack and protect him from hell and, and, and actually just has a good time with him. Mm. Which I, I think is the the part that's missing from, like you pointed out when he asked Jack to play the piano, like always hanging over Bouton's head is this existential fear for Jack. And it, Characterizes all every interaction that they have, and I I get that I'm a parent. Like I, it's not that I reject the sadness. I really am embracing. I'm in it. I just don't think it tells the whole story about human life. And to I, be fair, I we haven't wish, read the whole story. <laughs> that's so true. But up till now,
0: that's <laughs> right, true. Right. No.
1: That, and I um, do know how Marilyn Robinson books ends, Books end too. Um, I mm. don't know how this one ends. Um, and she may be like, just intentionally doing that. I mean, like these are books about this one thing. And I I think that's valid. So
0: obviously there are, there are some people who don't, you know, love her work, but why do you think her work is so popular? I mean, even among people that aren't people of faith, her books are so highly regarded. I mean, she won the Pulitzer Prize, um, which is something Wendell Berry hasn't, um, which I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean that there is a certain degree of notoriety and fame and readership that she has acquired in the literary, the literary world, mm-hmm. which, you know, actually is a world that Barry kind of himself just actively rejected. So, you know, right. why do you think that, I mean, there is a literariness to her work. There is a oh, yes. serious novel element to her, mm-hmm. to her work, which is why I think that it's, you know, Or she is one of the the great serious novel writers of our time, at least in our country. But then what is it about them that makes it so beloved even beyond like so many of our listeners, for example, who are, you know, moms raising their kids and homeschooling and things like that or, or teachers or whatever, love her work. And so it goes far beyond the literary establishment that gives up Pulitzer Prizes, so to speak. So what, where where do you think that comes from? Round Roundabout, long-winded way of asking a question I could have just said in like six words.
1: <laughs> um, well, I mean, what you just said, she's a beautiful writer and this is a real part of human existence. Like this, this question of how do I, like how is it possible to love someone so much and yet completely miss them all the time like that's like a great like a very deep human mystery and it's it's there's some kind of comfort in an author who's brave enough to take that on and make something out of it and I I think that I think she has earned her play. I think she deserves all of her. I mean, she's she's dig- digging into these relationships that are also representative of larger issues of faith and of American culture, and um, and just her writing's absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. So I I I think that in in what I'm saying, I want it to be really clear that I I think this is an incredible novel. I think she's an amazing novelist.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know. Do you see those glimpses of joy that you asked me if I see? Do you see them? Am I just missing them? Maybe I am.
0: Um, the point of fiction is absence. So like sometimes that just means that there is a clue absent that's gonna help you solve a mystery. And like it's very, you know, direct and specific when in you that say way. The
1: point of fiction is absence. I love that. I think it's true, but what do you what do you mean by that?
0: Well, okay, so like Okay so on the on the one hand it's what we talk we talk people talk all the time about the idea of a story is that someone is trying to sort of want something and then they go on some sort of a quest and i'm using the word quest very loosely to get that thing that they want right like that's the sort of archetypal language that people use when talking about fiction so it could be you know they're on a quest for a treasure uh, they're on the quest to get home. They're on the quest to um, throw the ring into the fire. Um, they're on, a, or they're on a quest to, you know, convince the girl to marry them, whatever it is, right? To get her to make a home, whatever it is. So, in some ways, it's just like there is something absent, and the plot are, is driven by the idea that I'm going to fill that absence uh, with something specific. Um, and then, Otherwise, it, but sometimes it could be something more abstract, like it's a story about people who have, who who are sad. <laughs> and that sadness comes from something that's missing. And so then the story becomes, a, the story is ostensibly about filling that, that hole. So I think that when we talk about the happiness, the question of happiness, um, or those little moments or whatever, I think that, I, I think that's hard to answer at this point because I think that in some ways that's what the book is just about. It's like I think he comes home because he is looking for that. Um I think like I think peace is often tied to filling some kind of hole that it hasn't created or the some it's like filling some sort of absence. Um the fewer the but you, you like to have peace. You either have to fill an absence, or you have to may, be able to make sense of an absence. And I right. think that in many ways, this is a book about people who are trying to. All three of them are trying to, to to do those two things. Right. Um. And so, would are there moments of happiness? I. I mean, I think that when they, there's a lot of laughter in this section. I noticed. Yeah. Um. In particular, he, um, she makes a very strong point to say in between things that they say to each other, that Jack and Gloria are laughing at each other, laughing together, laughing at each other. They laugh to the point where they're crying in multiple instances. In fact, earlier in this section, first Jack does it, and then later on, I believe, Glory does it. And like those two scenes seem to mirror each other. Um, and so I find that really interesting that the deeper we go into the book, the more laughter there is, the more music there is, um, the more work there is. Um, whereas at the beginning there was a lot of sitting around, a lot of closed blinds, a lot of reading, ironically, but just a lot of being alone. And in this section, as we go farther, there's a lot of a lot more things that are being done corporately. And the interesting thing is that by this point in the book, it's not Jack who is the one who's left out; it's actually their father, mm-hmm. because most of the interactions that are meaningful are be- are between Jack and Glory. Even as they're a little fraught at times, they also have some moments where they're able to let their guard down and Jack is feeling more and more comfortable. And that leaves the old man kind of the odd one out most of the time. And so I think that, um, that makes sense within the narrative because Boughton has hurt by been hurt by Jack's absence and Jack's behavior as a child in a way that glory wasn't, that was much more abstract for her. And so she has her brother back in that, They've been able to connect, but there's something deeper that's between Jack and Bowden that has to be worked towards. And so I think that those little moments come in those little moments of happiness and those laughters of our symbols or signals of reconciliation between glory and Jack. And thus, I think they, they're meant to, to at least suggest the sort of happiness that you're, I think, looking for. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, I think that that Robinson tends to write with what I would kind of call a sort of sleight of hand, where she's not going to do many things that are like, "Here's the moment you're looking for, and it's going to hit you in the face." You know, (laughs) right? Well, that's just good.
1: That's just I completely agree, and that's that's just being a good novelist. Like you don't want to make, I I think. Hmm. Because I I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think that everything you're saying is true. I th- I think what I'm sensing as I read this novel, and especially because I have Wendell Berry in mind, which mm-hmm. maybe isn't fair, but it is true. Like the kind of the contemplation of the life. Comparison of is one of America.
0: the best ways we can understand books. So
1: right. Um that they're both taking on very similar themes. Um, Faith, tradition, uh, small town America, the changing American culture in the middle of the 20th century. Um, And they're both taking that on from their own unique perspectives. And I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. I think what I see in Wendell Berry that's, that's different from Marilyn Robinson is that there's this... Um, I think of how to put this. Is it, is it
0: have to do with like a sort of more positive sense of like an inherent goodness in people?
1: Maybe. I mean, in that, I do want to get, I do want to talk about that. There, there's a very, very different, even though they're both people of faith and both identify as Christians, there's a very different, uh, set of theological assumptions and underpinnings and political assumptions and underpinnings um that that come from that
0: uh, Mm -hmm. from
1: from each of them even though they're doing the same thing i think what i see in wendell berry that's different from uh from marilyn robinson is that wendell berry is writing about um beyond the home right and this is about the home and the home as a metaphor for the soul that's that's what we're talking about with marilyn robinson uh and and with marilyn robinson she is exploring like i think her novel as a writer as a craftsman like it's um, incredible mm-hmm. as a representative of the ordinary human experience i think it misses a lot and and doesn't do enough honor to what does actually make a meaningful human life. And I think that that is something that Wendell Berry is very intentional about. He's like, I know that life is sad. It's also good. I know that life is good, and it's also sad. And I, so I, I think he's He's
0: being purposeful about identifying those things that
1: and break letting through the sadness. Them being, yes, letting them be explored in his novels as just this kind of tangled up human experience. And like I come from a super dysfunctional family. I have lots and lots of happy memories from being a child. And I, I think that with Marilyn Robinson, there's just this weight of a single exploration of a, of a unifying theme. And and i I think that that's I think it misses some of what. These people probably did experience. I mean, and I'm going to give you an example of this. She calls herself Glory. Glory has that con- when she's sitting and reading the Bible on the porch, and she has a conversation with Jack. It's a lovely conversation that she has with Jack mm-hmm. when he says, "Please save me, little sister," and she's like, "I don't know how to do that." And it's this. It's a. It's a wonderful conversation, mm-hmm. um, and she has this like internal monologue about her own personal piety and devotion. Mm -hmm. And she calls herself a pious person, Mm -hmm. right? And there's absolutely no indication that she has any kind of real sense of what she's doing, right? To pray and to read scripture on a daily basis and to call yourself pious, but get nothing out of it. And as I'm not sure that that's a full expression of faith, It's absolutely not a full expression of faith. And maybe that's the point. And you might be about to say that. I'm arguing what you're about. But like, and maybe that is the point. But I don't think that's indicative of most Christian families. That like you don't, that a girl at 38 years or 36 years old or however old she's 38, can sit there and read the Bible and pray and not have any sense that it should be more than just the form. It seems to mm. be a claim on Robinson's part that it isn't more than the form. And I don't know if she would agree with that or not. But there is such, there's such like an emphasis on the emptiness in this family's life. that I'm like, there had to be some kind of fullness somewhere, right?
0: Well, isn't that kind of what they're saying so often, though? Like, they're looking back at their memories and they're saying, we had these memories and yet we feel empty. What do we do? Like, what's the why?
1: Right, right. Right. And I don't think the novel offers a satisfying answer to that. And again, we're only halfway through, right? We're only halfway through, but yeah. I don't see So as you're saying
0: that's the thing you're looking there. for.
1: Yeah. I'm looking for some kind of reason. So, we should that wrap everything this up. Is so meaningless. Even prayer, even scripture, even, you know, like why though? So,
0: okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I. What do you mean?
1: So, what I'm really mean is, okay, so the term objective correlative, this always comes full circle, right? We always end up talking about objective correlatives. Objective correlative comes from uh, an essay that T.S. Eliot wrote about Hamlet. And what he says, he says that Hamlet is an artistic failure on Shakespeare's part. Mm -hmm. And his point is because there is nothing in the play that explains his extreme angst, anxiety, and existential crisis. There's no objective correlative. There's no explanation that is sufficient to Hamlet's uh, failure to be able to engage meaningfully and make decisions and all that. He says, so basically just Shakespeare made up this character and didn't give him a reason to be so tormented and then asks us to believe in that. I think, and I'm looking, I have the same complaint about Marilyn Robinson sometimes.
0: Which character though?
1: All of them. <laughs> Maybe not Boughton. His anxiety and is I think existent I think there is an objective correlative to his to him because he has this lost son and he has this set of theological principles that say that his son is going to be damned for all eternity. And or so might be. might be um And so that is, that to me is an objective correlative enough. I don't see it for the kids. I wish, so I think that's what I mean of like, well, then why are they just so so sad all the time?
0: I think, but isn't that the thing that Robinson, devil's advocate here. I mean. Yeah, no, it's good. Jack keeps saying so often, like there's that conversation in this section where he's talking to his button and he basically, it's when, Bouton asks him to come over and sit next to him, right? Mm-hmm. And Jack basically says, I don't know why I did the things that I did. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I think maybe maybe it was actually a conversation with the Glory, but the point is he says, I don't know why I couldn't that I felt so strange. I couldn't I couldn't be a part of things. I don't know why I couldn't uh, follow in the footsteps of the rest of the family. Right. And so in a sense, he doesn't know what the objective correlative is for his own behavior. And 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 ultimately the book asks the question of is it is there any objective correlative, but that there is a sort of decree that has been passed right. down by he who orders the universe. Right. Um, and what does that mean if so? Yeah. Um, like what if that is the case, if we accept that as our uh the worldview by which we're, or the not, bigger than the worldview, mm-hmm. the the sort of terms upon which we all exist, okay. then what does that mean about ha- how we interact with the people that we love and understand our own behavior? Right. Um. Go on. What were you going
1: to say? No, I think you're exactly right, and I think that the doctrine of predestination is the, the only the- objective correlative that makes this the heaviness and the weight of this novel make any sense. That and that and Marilyn Robinson is a Calvinist. So f- what she has given us is, as far as we know, that caveat <laughs> a a vessel set apart for destruction in Jack. And then everything and that breaks everything. That breaks everything. It breaks the family. It breaks each individual soul. But I think that. And that is probably the best explanation for an objective correlative for a reason for this weight that permeates these novels. In that case, then we're, I don't know, that that opens up, I don't know, maybe a can of worms. But it's, and maybe that's what it's meant to do.
0: So we get this section in the middle of this, we get this passage in the middle of the section we read for this week, middle-ish, where he's not eating. And she basically mm-hmm. is like, you need to eat. You need to eat. And he's like, no, I'm not hungry. Um, and she alludes to Raskolnikov. Yep. Um, let's see if I can find it. I put a bookmark in it. Okay, mm-hmm. here we go. 130. What would you like for breakfast? A little more coffee. No, you're going to eat something. If you want to look like Kolnikov, all right. Otherwise, you had better start eating. It would probably help you sleep. I'm going to make pancakes, which I like the notion of the Russian tie to pancakes. <laughs> uh, oh, please, no, not pancakes. You have to let me work up to this. French toast, oatmeal, eggs and toast. Now I'm Roskolnikov. Just yesterday, I was Carrie Grant. You don't eat, you don't sleep. That's what happens. I'll make you French toast. Okay, so then that conversation goes on. There's a lot here. But this, mm. I, the way Robinson phrases this from Glory, if you, if you want to look like Ross all right. And of course, Ross is a, a tortured soul who commits a crime <laughs> uh, almost because he wants to feel something. <laughs> right. Um, So that's vastly like a a very oversimplification. If you want to avoid the oversimplification, then you can go to our Patreon page and you can listen to months of episodes on that book that we just finished up recently. Um, But she doesn't say you look like Roskolnikov or you are Roskolnikov. She says, if you want to look like Roskolnikov, okay, don't eat. In a way, it kind of sets her up to be a sort of Sonia type character here.
1: Um
0: you know, this character who, despite what he thinks of himself, despite what the world thinks of him, and despite what he deserves, you know, is loyal to him, and um, that it, the, the theological underpinnings between crime and punishment in this book are very different, and yet they're both dealing with questions of, like, depravity and tortured souls, and they're both deeply psychological novels. And so, one of the questions that I was thinking about is, is, as a psychological novel, how does it, it's like a psychological novel that has to somehow jive with the doctrine of predestination. And so, as much as it is like, how do I interact with somebody else who f- seems like maybe they're, they've been predetermined to mm-hmm. be damned forever, there's also this sense of like, how do I exist as myself if I feel a fear? that I might be damned to some degree.
1: Right.
0: Um, in Raskolnikov, is the book suggesting here that he is on the way to becoming a Raskolnikov and then ultimately that's going to be the solution? It seems to me that he's placed, like the book is placing him on a Raskolnikov continuum. Hmm. <laughs> so is, is he like...
1: What are the sides of the continuum?
0: <laughs> well, there's the before the murder and after the murder continuum, okay. at least if you're looking mm-hmm. at crime and punishment. So, I mean, maybe he is in some way in the... He's Raskolnikov when the when the crime and punishment is over. Like he's at prison in, in prison in Siberia at the end and she's bringing him food every day um, until he eventually gets out. And so I, it, I guess the question I have is... Um, well, I guess the basic question is what's with the allusion to Raskolnikov here that I'm mm-hmm. trying to work out as I'm thinking aloud here? And then, what does that have to do with this this doctrine of predestination with the Calvinism that's sort of at the heart of this book? Um,
1: oh man, so I think I changed my mind from the beginning of the episode until now that <laughs> um because you ask good questions so if if Jack is and and I actually have heard. Interviews with Robinson in which she does allude to Jack as being kind of a thought experiment on, um, on the doctrine of double predestination. So if Jack is intended to be a question mark of the soul that is chosen for damnation or set apart for damnation is a better word for that, a better, much more accurate, Calvinistically accurate statement. Um, (laughs) If he is set apart for destruction, then how, what kind of impact would that make on the people that love him, especially if those people are marked for salvation? And that is more than sufficient objective correlative for the sadness of this book.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that because I mentioned Sonia, and if there's mm-hmm. one thing that Sonia believes, it's that there is nobody. She's like yep. the opposite of someone who believes in predestination in, in many ways. Yep. Like she, she knows she knows more about him than he knows about himself, basically, and yet she believes that no one is ultimately condemned to destruction or set apart for destruction. Right. So I just find it fascinating that Marilyn Robinson drops that. Reference in here, and mm-hmm. sets glory apart as this Sonia-like character through it's that a illusion. Great
1: observation,
0: especially given that Marilyn Robinson herself is a Calvinist, and to me that suggests not that the book is like dogmatic about the theology, but that it asks questions about the theology. That it's like right. exploring the theology um, that she that she believes that she believes in, and that right. she has defended in 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 uh, essays and things like that, talks, essays so yeah. to me it makes that 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 becomes really compelling because if 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 the characters run if 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 in, if Sonia in crime and punishment is the opposite is sort of like representative of an opposite belief to what Robinson herself seems to buy into then what does it mean that the, the that the protagonist the main character the character whose perspective we're in for this novel about predestination what does it mean if she is representative of or at least an allusion to a character who is the opposite of that.
1: Right. So, I, no, I mean, to good.
0: me, it makes the book, it opens the book up to being way more questioning than it is dogmatic about the theology, even if we have this character like Boughton and Jack's own, for lack of a better word, depravity hovering over the story. And to me, right. that actually suggests a sort of hopefulness about, uh, in Robinson's mind about a character like Jack. How so? Because it's suggesting that it's at least exploring the idea that he's not condes- that he's not set apart for destruction
1: by comparing him to Raskolnikov, you mean,
0: yeah, and then bringing
1: okay
0: the glory like by yeah. i mean it's I think it's at least asking the question i don't i mean I don't think that
1: mm-hmm.
0: i mean do you well, I don't want to talk about that till the end actually right we,
1: um i mean i've I've read Gilead, I know how this. Ends, but some of our readers don't, our listeners don't. The, um, it. I mean, it takes place at a concurrent time, right? Which is yeah. what's really interesting and brilliant about this series of novels. Like, it's each of them is standalone, explores the same circumstances from different characters' perspective, um, bringing in different things that overlap, and then some completely new idea. It's really cool. Like, a re- it's in, they're incredibly well. Yeah written and brilliantly crafted. But I like your point about Sonia and glory. And I hadn't made that connection. I really appreciate that, that Sonia, but that Sonia is Raskolnikov's path to salvation because she never, ever, ever gives up on him. And um, and in many ways, as we talked about in the Patreon episodes, allows him to um, abuse her, not not in a physically violent sense, but through because of the distortion and the this disruption and the sickness in his own soul, he's cruel to her over and over again, and she loves him faithfully through it. And it is in that that he finds his salvation, mm-hmm. and um and that and we're seeing a very similar dynamic play out in well, home.
0: Yeah, and it strikes me that Gloria is trying to figure out, in a way, it what in the end what is her commitment to him? What is her yes. help for him going to mean?
1: Yes. She's more honest about it than than Sony is about the impact on her. And when she says to him, haven't you ever considered that there's anybody as miserable as you? There's more than one miserable person in this house. And she's she's calling him on a lot of important things that um and in some ways get to his heart more than his father's able to do because his father's so focused on his behavior. You know, did you go out drinking last night? Are you the thief that's stealing from the drugstore? You know, um, but in a very kind of passive-aggressive roundabout way. Um, yeah, they
0: call that Midwestern.
1: Okay, good to know. <laughs>
0: As a Midwestern.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just
0: defended uh, yeah. a bunch of my people from the Midwest, but they're, they would never tell me though.
1: But it's Glory who's like directly saying, you're not the only miserable person here. I told you I didn't want to talk about that. And you keep bringing it up and making fun of me for it. Like there's, there's a lot of things that, that uh that glory gets to she has this ability to uh kind of address the real sins of jack not the perceived sins of jack um Mm -hmm. and that's i think really important and you know could potentially be a sonia like influence on him if he were to be able to receive that with humility
0: well it strikes me that influence that's a good word because influence is a big part of this section So. You know, especially, well, This on page um, 114 and 115. Mm-hmm. I'll just read a little passage here.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, he jacks that down at the piano, tinkered at the keys for a moment, found the tune and played it through. His father did not sing. Now whispering hope. Yes, sir. When the song ended, his father said, making my heart in its sorrow rejoice. That can actually happen. I've had that experience. Hope is a very valuable thing since there is not always so much to rejoice about in this life. Jack went to stand in his father's doorway to spare him the effort of raising his voice. The old man said, come here, Jack, bring the chair over here. There's something I need to say to you. You're probably going to have to forgive me for this. I'll do my best. Well, I know that I can count on that. And you're a grown man now. Jack laughed. True. So I want to put a question to you, all right? Go ahead. I feel I didn't do right by you. I wasn't a good father to you. What? Really? No, it's a feeling I've always had, almost since you were a baby, as though there was something you needed from me and I never figured out what it was. Jack cleared his throat. I really don't know what to say. I've always thought you were a very good father, much better than I deserved. And then I want to skip ahead a little bit because Bouton says... I just never knew another child who didn't feel at home in the house where he was born. Jack says, I can't explain that. And then a little bit ahead, I always felt it was sadness I was dealing with, a sort of heavy heartedness in a child. And how could I be angry at that? I should have known how to help you with it. So in this section here, we get this question of influence coming up. But they're trying to grapple with what it means. Because he says... I wasn't a good father to you. It's interesting to me, by the way, that he says I want to put a question to you, and then never never asks a question.
1: Never. Asked he just a says question.
0: I feel I didn't do right by you. I wasn't a good father to you. He did. It's just a statement. So that's interesting. But, hmm. um, he's saying I was. I'm part of the reason. Like I was never able to reach you, and so I'm part of the reason why you are the way you are now, and why the way you the way you were then. And Jack's saying, "Look, I I can't explain this. Like, I can't, um, I can't give you a reason for my behavior that is going to help you understand things. And yet, and then at the same time, Bowden is I 'I couldn't do anything. And yet, you were just born this way. You were born mm-hmm. sad. And I, you know, you, you know, he's like." as a as an innocent child you were sad and i could never reach that and so for boughton to me it's like this is the central conflict in him where he's saying this child needed something i couldn't give him but if he was born this way what could i ever offer him in the first place and the thing is he brings it to jack to help explain and jack's like i don't know i can't, if i could if if i knew the answer to this we would have solved these problems years ago um mm-hmm. and and so that to, in a book that's about whether or not people are damned right.
1: can be saved. Yeah.
0: And then the idea of that's why I think this coming. And then a little bit after that coming, this, this question about Sonia and the idea of Sonia being part of what's called salvation is just such a fascinating ju- juxtaposition because Robinson is like actively, I wouldn't say she's struggling, but she's actively presenting different options here mm. in terms of, how to work out what the theology is in real real people. Like she is trying, to me, what happens here is whatever you actually believe about her theology, she is trying to de-abstract the theology. And I find that really, a really um, important thing. I find that to be a really important work that she's doing. I
1: agree. Yep. I agree. What I think is fascinating about Robinson though, is that in this, this I think really is just a an unflinching genius like that. She's not, she's not indicting it. She's exploring it. She's saying mm-hmm. like, this is what it would look like. Yeah. And, and then, and that's why I said, I take back everything I said about the objective <laughs> correlative in the story because like that's, not only is that sufficient to explain this family, it's sufficient to explain every sad thing in every life ever. If like there's, a, it's it's sufficient to explain all human sadness. If there is no way for somebody to be saved. Yeah. Like that's right. that. And, and he talks about that on, um, what page is it? 143. And that, when he's yeah, having a conversation. about perdition. With Glory, yes. Um, and Glory says to him, he dreamed about you, about you before you wrote to him, before he knew you were coming. You were always on his mind all those years. It isn't having you here that makes him worry. And Jack replies, then it's what? My existence, I suppose? My hapless, disreputable ex- existence? And from his point of view, I can't even put an end to it. There is no end to it. I'll always be somewhere in eternity, rotting or writhing. The poor old devil feels responsible for my soul. I.
0: Glory's response to that, though, is interesting. He never said one thing in his life about rotting or writhing.
1: Yeah. And then he says something. Hold on. Um,
0: true um, it was always perdition wasn't it I finally looked the word up in the dictionary the utter loss of the soul or a final happiness in a future state Semicolon, future misery or eternal death and by the way I just want to say Marilyn Robinson is very funny because like mm-hmm. dropping that semicolon line in there shows so much personality in Jack and is actually quite humorous in the midst of a very dark part so I reject the notion of Marilyn Robinson not being funny I don't oh, reject just, the notion that she's funny. very sad <laughs>
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of humor in these conversations. Um, but it's not a humor that lifts the sadness, which to your point could be part of the brilliance of her writing. Like that's the incredible nature of the craft. And, um, but he's right. Like there's no way to set fountain free of, his worry, this is a, a deep parental anxiety. He, he doesn't even want to die. There's no way to relieve this anxiety. If no matter where, if he's there, he's a constant reminder to his father. If he's gone, he's lost and his father's worried. If he's dead, he's even more lost. And that, I think, is, again, more than sufficient to explain the sadness of the book. And... It's, but what's interesting to me about Marilyn Robinson, like I just said, is that she's not rejecting this idea. She's not indicting it. She's, she's, she's just saying, this is what it means. Like, this is what it means to believe this.
0: Well, you know, she says, he says, that sounds all very Presbyterian right before this. And she says, well, there are worse things. And he says, oh, believe me, I'm well aware that there are.
1: (laughs) I don't know though. Maybe there are. Maybe so. Wait. I can't think of one as a parent. Can you think
0: of, of anything worse than a Presbyterian? What?
1: I can't think of anything worse than believing being haunted by the fear that my child is predestined for damnation.
0: Oh, 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 oh. <laughs>
1: I can't think of anything worse than that.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: Right. that's, and that is the exploration here. And, and maybe that's why they keep missing each other. So, hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, obviously, you know he. She says, "Why don't you? Why don't you, pre- you know, tell him a story, mm-hmm. maybe that you've that you're have a different sort of faith or whatever?" And then he says, "You want me to lie about the state of my soul?" This, and she's like, "Yeah, it's just an idea." Um, for the you know for the sake of their father, and like that's one of the questions that's hovering over the rest of the novel is. What is what is the state of Jack Soul, and that's hmm. it's difficult to really get a sense of what he actually believes and doesn't believe. It's kind of what makes him an enigma and complicated, and a good fictional character. Um,
1: what do you make of his that conversation they have about when Glory kind of suggests, without saying it, that he should just tell his father that he believes. And he says, that's my one scruple. Um, yeah, he says he won't be, he do, how do he, be a hypocrite. Yes, like how do you read that? Do you read that as like moral courage or um, like, you know, is that, is it a scruple worth having? Uh, is it, is it kind of, you know, I have a couple thoughts on it, but I, I want to hear yours. Like I thought that was a significant conversation and really interesting.
0: I read it, I mean, on first blush anyway, I I read it. Um I read it as a sort of um, I, I read it as both a moral courage and sort of not very self-aware hmm. because I don't think it's like, I mean, he's saying, I want to be honest about this. So there is a moral courage to that, but also like he he's, a, I mean, he says he's not a hypocrite, but I mean, he also is. So, um,
1: right. <clears throat> Why is that the one thing he can't say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he recognizes the severity, like that. There's a the question of this, the question of the fate of one's soul is serious, right? And so, and he recognizes that to lie about it, if if all if everything that his father believes is true, then to lie about it is, it's to, I mean, it's not going to mean anything. So there's a there's a there's a weight to it and a seriousness to it that I think he. He at least accepts. He might not. Because with Jack, I don't know. I think Jack believes the basic premises. Like, Jack to me is not a nihilistic, Mm -hmm. this agnostic, pure atheistic character. Right.
1: He wouldn't be so tormented if he was. Right.
0: I think he's a character who like Raskolnikov and maybe this is where the comparison really comes in <laughs> like Raskolnikov believes in the existence of god but feels like he doesn't have a way into that into he doesn't he hasn't had he hasn't felt the sense of piety that gives him answers that someone like his sister has, for example, he hasn't, he isn't able to, he hasn't felt the sort of urge to pray the way his father does the, the sort of love for scripture, the way his brother, who's a minister does. And so he hasn't, he has, he has no way into the faith that is meaningful, that he is found to be meaningful to him and and like that he really can grasp onto. And so I think that that, leaves him feeling like as he would have been taught that he's probably damned forever or that possibly he's damned forever that, that, that like, you know, he might believe in God, but like he has a hard time with the faith question. Hmm. Um, And, and doesn't feel like he's got a way into the, into the, uh, like if it, if, if, your, if your eternal life depends on your piety and to some degree, using the word loosely, then he has very little of the piety quotient. Mm-hmm. Inst- innately, instinctively, however you want to put it. Um, and I know that oh. that's not what the theology says. I'm not saying that the theology right, says your right. piety is what ties to your salvation. but mm-hmm. it's,
1: it's, most I mean, I grew up in a reformed household. Most Calvinists would say, if you ask the question. I am I saved? And if you are tormented by the idea that you're not, then you're not truly unregenerate, because an unregenerate person doesn't care about God, isn't seeking. No, there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. Right. So if you're asking the question, there is some evidence of prevenient grace. Um, and but what's interesting about Jack? And, what I, and this I can't tell, and I'd love, this, this is me, this is a giant question mark for me. I can't tell if his questions about the faith have anything to do with a true desire to know or engage with the faith or true fear for his soul, or if it's just he's been trained so much and it's about pleasing his parents and his father and, and trying to resolve those relationships in some way. Um, and that... But his life has been
0: so broken and the only way to solve it is to make some peace with his family. Types of Right.
1: Yes. Like his, his concern isn't with God. It's with his dad. Um, but I don't, I don't know. That's not a statement. It's a question. Mm. That's, I mean, I really can't, That's I really can't see because he does ask glory, like, please save me little sister. But he also says, I am not repentant. Regret is not the same thing as repentance. Um,
0: well, but does he know himself? Like that's the big right. thing that I, I think yeah. one of the big questions this book is asking is he has all there's all these ideas that when he says something like that that that's true. like you can look at the things that he says and be like that's a profound idea that I should think about. but does right. he actually know himself and like is the question is the questioning itself is is to even think of to to contemplate that? Is it like a sort of repentance on its own
1: right And I think that's a really good question and i because <laughs> I if you look at what Calvin actually said not what people say Calvin said um but what Calvin <laughs> truly said uh well and institutes, I mean don't, yes.
0: this is you're opening up a real can of worms here
1: well but it is it is important because otherwise it's too easy to dismiss this if you're not a calvinist right it's too easy to say well you know I don't believe that and so this is a false dilemma that's being created by Marilyn and Robinson and we do
0: here. know that Robinson when she's a Calvinist, not a Calvinist, she's <laughs> a Calvinist.
1: Yeah, That's, well, if she lo- She's read Calvin. She's not right. taking any of this from like a Google search, <laughs> but yeah. But his his whole point again is. If you show any evidence of caring about God, that's evidence of grace. You cannot be a person who wants God's grace and then is denied it. That's not double predestination. So if you have any longing for for God, that's only given by God. And so... It's there's no such thing as someone standing outside the door and banging on the door of the faith and being like, let me in, let me in, let me in. No, I'm sorry. You're damned for destruction. That's not Calvin's teachings. Uh, So, but, and what we do see, I think we do see enough of a question mark in Jack that could be evidence of some kind of intervening grace in his life. And I think that's really important not to just dismiss this as like, well, it's just double predestination. I don't believe that. There's a real yeah. question about his the state of his soul because he is so tormented by it.
0: I think this is actually a good place to stop because I think that this is an idea that the rest of the book explores. Yeah. Yeah. Like where might there be examples of grace at work in his life, where might he, we might see examples of him reaching longing, um, questions of the ultimate fate of his soul, which, you know, just a little thing like that. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and wrap it up. And I I mean, I guess Mm -hmm. that's just as easy, uh, just as, you know, that's, if when I usually ask, what are you going to be looking for? I'll just check that box there for me. Is there anything else you want to add to that? No. Okay. Well, then let's, let's stop there. And then next week, we'll dive in a little bit further. And like I said, S, uh, Sarah Jane, SJ is going to be joining us to talk about pages 150 to 200, roughly. I think that, I think that's what it was. Um, don't forget that we will be uh, diving into the next section, next couple chapters of the Lord of the Rings and you can join the conversation, all that. Don't forget to head over to scoleacademy.com to learn more about how you can uh, submit a tutoring request if you want some Classical, restful tutoring services to help uh, supplement the education of your child. Uh, we are really grateful to them. Really glad to be friends with them too. Uh, above all, so thanks to Schole Academy for for being our friends and for supporting the show. Heidi, thank you so much for doing this as always.
1: No, thanks, David. This is now we're in the middle of the meat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, is there what is the middle of a pancake? Flour.
1: Definitely not the meat. <laughs> yeah.
0: They they've eaten a lot of breakfast food in this. Let's just say that. Lots of toast, eggs. I think she did make a roast which roast chicken at one point, so maybe we can still go with meat. But like a hobby. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, with that for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Happy reading.